you know, the, the activism part was kind of brewing through my career. We had equal pay claims and, um, you know, coming out as a gay athlete was all part of that. Obviously, the, the most pivotal moment was, you know, supporting Colin Kaepernick and Black Lives Matter and, and kneeling with Colin during that, you know, fall of 2016 and basically kind of put out to pasture and in the wind a little bit. Um, and then just kind of understand, like, I'm just going to do my thing and, and play my game. And I feel like once I came back from that, because I feel like people were trying to, like, push me out. And then once I was back from that, it just emboldened me so much more. Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, and this is season four of Needing Dough. On this show, I sit down with your favorite athletes to have a candid conversation about their experiences with money. And we hope that you, the listener, pick up some tips and tricks along the way to apply to your everyday finances too. And that's where I come in. As a former NFL wide receiver, I'm here to bring you my personal perspective on how the lessons you're going to hear translate to you in your life. Now, before we jump into today's conversation, this show is brought to you by Uninterrupted and Chase. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free, it helps other people find the show, and it notifies you every time we drop a new episode. And now, I am excited to introduce today's guest, soccer champion, superhero, activist, and global icon, Megan Rapino. On today's show, we're focusing on finding your money mentor, the person who's going to guide you and help you set the pace for your personal financial journey. As one of the leaders in the fight for equal pay in women's sports, Megan is a mentor to many, but she too had to learn how to set herself up for greatness. All right, time to get to it. I'm actually like really excited about this episode. I feel like I've been trying to talk about money more and finances, especially with women in sports. And so this is this is really exciting for me. I love it. And we're going to get into all that. We have so much to talk about. But we're going to start at the beginning. Now, you grew up in Redding, California. Now, with the research I did about Redding, California, I'm not going to lie. I'm surprised that they are the, the birthplace of the one and only Megan Rapino. So tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up there. I mean, to be honest, I feel like I had kind of a, you know, sort of a picturesque, normal childhood. Um, I'm one of six kids in my family, so we got a big family. My mom's one of eight, so we have a lot of, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles always around. Um, it's kind of a rural-type area. It's like more of a big town than a city. Um, it's generally pretty deeply conservative, so... Uh, it is interesting that uh, their the birthplace of one of their daughters, uh, who became basically a flaming liberal, but um, I still very much call it home, and all my family's still there and stuff. So I love it, to be honest. Um, it's a, a nice break from big cities and a chance to kind of relax and breathe a little bit. That's awesome. I'm from a very similar kind of town, so I get I get the same thing. Tell me, tell me this: what was, what kind of financial situation was your family in when you were growing up? I would say my family were like lower middle class. Um, my dad's a construction worker. My mom's a waitress. Um, we always had everything we needed, but um, there was definitely a sense of like uh, financial scarcity or just sort of insecurity a little bit. Um, like I said, as we you know we we weren't um, you know struggling or not having food on the table, but it was definitely um, you know a sort of month to month or paycheck to paycheck kind of household, like so many other households in the U.S. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for myself, I find myself even on this side of things where I'm doing okay financially, 
you know, but I still kind of have that same mentality that I had growing up. You know, you, 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 you get used to budgeting, you get used to saving, you're, you're very protective on the, the purchases you make. For you, do you think your childhood and how you grew up uh, helped dictate how you look at money on this side of your life? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I think growing up, I, I didn't really have a sort of broad sense of financial literacy. I didn't really know all those things. I feel like finances in my house in a lot of ways were like, we need to make this much money so we can be okay for the next month. And it was um, always a thing that was a, a little bit stressful. And so I think when I first started making money, like I didn't always know how to take care of it. I wasn't frivolous by any means, but I think it actually almost made me a little bit more conservative. Like, okay, what do I actually need to do with this? And how do I make it last? And how do I budget? And how do I save? Um, and I think that's kind of suited me well throughout the years. It's, you know, I, I definitely am making more money now than I was, you know, first out of college or even in my first few years. So I can spend a little bit more on things, but I definitely have an eye on like, especially with my career, like this is not going to last forever. And the money that I'm making now, hopefully I can make stretch for a few decades at least. I love that. What, what was your first job? Did you have a job when you were in high school or growing up? You're looking at it. This is, this is it. This is the only job that, <laughs> that I've ever had. So we didn't really have a lot of time. Um, and my parents were always kind of like, listen, as long as you guys are doing well in school and you, you know, you're playing sports and spending your time doing that, um, you don't have to get a job. Uh, yeah, I never re really even like, well, I definitely never wanted to have another job. So I was like, as long as you guys are cool with that, we'll keep, you know, working out and, and making sure we're good in school. All right, Megan, so you didn't work growing up. Did you have chores around the house? Did you get an allowance from your parents? Like, how did you get money, you know, in the, in the early adolescent years? Yeah, we, we definitely had some chores on the table. Um, it was like either sort of like doing yard work outside, like weeding the flower beds or something like that, or the dreaded, like the inside cleaning, like cleaning the bathrooms or something like that. I, I hated doing all that. I think all kids do. But even then, I was pretty motivated by money, so... The ten dollars of allowance that was coming my way was uh, was good enough for me to get my button gear. Well worth it. So did your did your allowance hinge on whether or not you did your chores? Oh yeah, definitely. We would totally get docked. We used to have like a chore chart up in the house at some point with like you know my mom put stickers or check marks on the things that we did or didn't do. We had to make our bed in the morning and keep our room clean and do all those little things. And uh, I was known to get a a couple penalties here and there. <laughs> So when you got the money, what did you do for it, with it? Did you put it in a, a, a checking account? Did you just keep it under your bed? Yeah, I think I kept it in like a wallet or something. I was probably usually saving up to like buy a pair of sneakers or uh, buy something at the mall. Uh, I never really saved up all that much. It came in pretty small increments. But yeah, I was mostly like patient to the point where I got enough money where I could spend it on what I wanted to. Early on, like our parents are our first money mentor. For, for most of us, for you, was there anything like money-wise that they wanted to instill in you earlier that you remember them talking about even then that you still kind of use today? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely the the savings account thing. I think I was maybe like early in high school or something when we got like a, a checking and a savings account, um, trying to understand the like overdraft charges and just making sure that you were at least putting some money away. Uh, we didn't have a lot, but at least putting some of it away um, just to kind of like trigger that, you know, sort of thing in your brain of like, okay, you get, you get $10, like put, you know, four or five of it away, you can spend a little bit, and then you need to have a little bit extra for an emergency or anything like that.
you grew up playing competitive youth soccer and there's travel that's involved with that and you know there's a lot of finances that go along with that too like what was that like for your family like giving that kind of commitment so early on to your soccer career well that's exactly what it was I mean I feel like they made such a huge sacrifice um, basically committing probably all of the extra money that they had at that time to you know drive us all over the state and fly all over the country for all these different tournaments Um, I mean I think my sister and I'm a twin sister so we both played on the same team I think we definitely had like a keen understanding that like all of this money was sort of going into us playing sports. And I think really back then the goal was like to get to college and, and get your college paid for. And then, you know, we'll kind of see where life takes us from there. But it was definitely an understanding of like our, our family is sacrificing a lot and our parents are putting a lot into it to make sure that, you know, we have every opportunity we can to be successful and, and ultimately, I think, get to college and, and get that paid for. I love that. I mean, it's, it's kind of like an investment into your kids. I mean, and it's, yeah. it's paid extreme dividends. You were very devoted to soccer at such an early age. Was there anything else that you were like super devoted to or at least close to equal to soccer? My fandom of Michael Jordan, I was pretty close to <laughs> equal devotion, especially growing up with those 90s Bulls. Um, yeah, we played all kinds of sports. We played basketball. Um, I did track in, in high school and then trying to keep up on school. I mean, nothing was at the level of soccer just because we were so much better at that than any of the other sports. But um, we, we love we, we played something all year round pretty much. Um, and, and definitely soccer kind of took the, the brunt of the time. All right. So let's, let's fast forward. You know, you become a pro. Now, how did you go about finding a money mentor early on in your soccer career once you actually started bringing in some income? Yeah, so my first, I think it was like my first year or two, I really didn't have anyone. Um, You know, I wasn't making crazy money, but definitely, you know, much more than I had ever made. So I was kind of just trying to do it on my own and, you know, budget where I could. And I didn't really have a lot of bills. Being an athlete a lot of times, um, especially when you're young, a lot of your housing's paid for and, you know, your flights and everything is taken care of and per diem. So, I felt like I, I wasn't having to budget too much of that. I think the kind of turning point for me was like the, the first and second year that I paid taxes. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going what's going on here? Why? Why is all this being taken out? So um, actually, my uh, my uncle, my my aunt's um, husband, they were married when I was in uh, high school. So he was kind of new to to our life a little bit or just when I was getting out of junior high. Um, so he kind of, he's a financial advisor, um, in our town. So he kind of just very subtly was like, listen, if you ever, you know, need any just advice or want to talk or need help, you know, I'm always here for you. So I definitely took him up on that. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of, of our money mentorship. I didn't really know, like I said, I didn't have the financial literacy. I didn't know, um, you know, really what to do with the money. I knew that you could save it. And it's like, okay, it's one thing to have it in a savings account. But now, you know, are we going to get into stocks? Are we going to get into bonds? Or what kind of, you know, mutual funds are we going to get into all that kind of stuff. So we've been kind of on this long journey for, for the last decade of, of making sure that um, the money stretches and also that I put myself in a good position when I'm when I'm out of my career. That's incredible, too. I mean, just for your money mentor to be someone close to you, that you can trust, right? That's such a big point about money for me. I mean, that was, that was my biggest concern. I don't trust anybody. So I'm sitting here just like holding on to my money because I don't trust anybody to do anything good with it. So that, that's amazing that you had that. Um, you know, when I played in the NFL in the locker room early on, I mean, I'm like every other young athlete, 
you see the cars, you see the jewelry, you see the clothes, and you're like, oh, I want to indulge like everyone else. And I would kind of have the OGs pull me aside and say, like, hey, man, you got to you gotta pace yourself. Get, get used to having it first, you know, because it spins a lot faster than it comes in. For you, did you have anybody in the locker room or, you know, older teammates that mentored you when you were a young player about finances? And if so, what were those conversations like? Yeah, I mean, we definitely had a, a similar experience, I think on a, a little bit different scale, but still it's kind of there when, you know, I first came on the team, um, you know, there was players that were sort of well into their career that like owned homes or multiple homes and, you know, had a nice car or had Range Rover or whatever it was. And it, it is that sort of temptation of like, I have this money now, like, you know, I want to get this stuff or I want to go shopping or I want to get a, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I feel like our older players, um, did a pretty good job of like kind of explaining to us like how it all works and, and how you make it last and how over time you can start to, you know, maybe think about those bigger purchases, whether that be a home or just something nice or a car or whatever it is. Um, but kind of not right away. Like you almost have to like earn it, you know, sort of set, even if it's just kind of like this loose budget for yourself of like, if I do this or, you know, if I get a big bonus, maybe a little part of that is going to go to something nice. And I feel like I, I try to do that with my teammates now. And I think even now we're making a lot more money than when I came in. And so having them understand like, okay, you might be making like a few hundred thousand dollars a year, or half a million dollars a year. Like it sounds like a lot. Um, and, and in general terms it, it is, but like it, it can go quick if you, you know, buy a home or if you buy a house or get a little loose uh, on a shopping spree or something. Um, that money could go quick. And then not to mention, obviously, bills and taxes and, you know, all those kinds of things. So I try to sort of explain to them, like, just just take it slow and and let yourself kind of get comfortable in the finances that you have. A lot of us um, don't come from a lot, so it might be different than our normal experience. And so just getting comfortable with that type of money and what that all means. Um, and then when you get a little bit older, you're like, OK, I'm, I'm a little bit more secure in my cash right now. Can you remember a specific situation where an older player on your team, you know, was giving you financial guidance or advice just as you became a player professionally? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, certainly when tax season came around, it was like, what do we do? How do we do this? Uh, but one specific thing was uh, was an IRA. Um, I was like, what's an IRA? What's an IRA? Like, what do you mean? They're like, oh, well, you can put your money in here and it's like tax deferred and, you, you know, you can't take it out. For a long time, but it's basically, you know, a way to save a little bit of money, but also kind of invest into your retirement. So that was kind of one of the, the first things. Um, we didn't have really a, a 401k program. So yeah, one of my teammates, it might have been Abby. I think it was Abby, yeah, or, or Heather O'Reilly, who told me about putting money into an IRA when it came around to tax season. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. I, I still do that. Do you feel a responsibility to the young players to like, I feel like for you, it's like, yo, you're, you're like, you're like it. Everyone looks up to you in the sport and even outside the sport. For like young athletes, do you feel a responsibility to like get, set them on the right path, both financially and just how they approach their careers? Yeah, I really do. I definitely do. Um, and, and I think, as you were saying earlier, you, you kind of get into the locker room and the younger players, they're looking at, you know, Alex Morgan and, you know, Alex has a couple homes or she drives this kind of car or whatever. And it's like, she's been in this for like 10 years and she's a superstar. So while you're on the same team, we're maybe not in the same position and that's okay. You can get to that position, but just kind of like, you know, having them understand 
um, just, yeah, budgeting and saving and, and ultimately how to make it last. And, and then just in general, I think like having that sort of professional approach to things, whether it's your money or your craft or your training or um, games or whatever it is, I think it all kind of goes hand in hand, that sort of responsibility and thinking ahead and, you know, using the resources that you have around you. I mean, obviously now, you know, our younger players, they have a lot of us older players to look up to and, and players that, you know, have been able to kind of go through their career and see the changes in money that we've made. And obviously we're making a lot more now, but that's also, you know, some sort of tales of wisdom that we can pass down to them as well. Did, did, did you like, was there anything early on in your career that you spent money on that you regret at this stage of your life? Like, what is the purchase where you're like, man, if I can go back, I probably wouldn't buy that. I would actually say this is probably more a question for now because I feel like early on in my career, I mean, I was making good money, but not close to where we're making now. And just having like that kind of extra cash, I think in the last couple of years, even the financial landscape of our sport um, and the players on our team has changed a lot. So I think early on, maybe some like, I don't know, shopping trips or something. But even now, I would say probably now, like there's a few expensive pieces in my closet where I'm like, I don't even wear that right now. It was so much, but I've been pretty, I've been pretty good. Um, I, I waited a long time to buy, buy the big pieces and now I got to maybe pump the brakes a little bit. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now you have the, the, the true disposable income. So you got to be a little bit more strict and disciplined. Yeah. It's kind of like I, I have it now. So I'm like, just because you have, it doesn't mean that you even like want this thing or you should buy this thing. So it's kind of like you could spend, you know, uh, whatever, $50,000 or $25,000 on something now, but it's like, is that really worth it? Or is it a trend? Or is it something that's going to last? What's like the actual value of it? So I feel like all those things kind of come into it. All right. Now, for, for early on in your career, what was the first big purchase that you remember making, Megan? Probably like some laptops or like some electronics or something like that. Um, I didn't have a car right away. I didn't really need one. We were traveling so much and I hadn't hadn't bought a home yet, but I guess probably buying a home. I think I bought a home like three years into my career. So I was like, this is very like professional of me. This is very good investment. So, and it, it, it actually has turned out to be a good one. So, I mean, that's very adult-like. I mean, my, my three years into my career, the biggest, when I first started getting like NFL checks, I remember I had to have a big debate with my girlfriend, who's my wife now, about if I was gonna buy the iPad and uh, you know a, a tap, if I was gonna buy a tablet and these new headphones, it was like a big deal to me. Cause I'm like, well, I, don't, I make it cut. I'm gonna wish I had these $500 back. So to buy a home, that's a pretty big deal. What, what made you make that purchase so early on in your career? It was just after the Olympics actually in London. Um, and we had won the Olympics. Um, so we had gotten some bonuses from that, um, not only from the Olympic committee, but also from the Federation, there was like a few extra sponsorship dollars kind of floating around in there. So I kind of had this big chunk of cash and I was like, I kind of wanted to settle down. I bought it at my house in Portland. Um, I kind of wanted to settle down there and just at least have like a spot. Um, I was renting at the time, like in an overpriced place that wasn't even really there. So I was like, okay, this is a, a good, good time to buy. It was 2012 or the beginning of 2013. So the market had kind of started to come back a little bit. And I thought this was a, a good time. Portland's growing and um, it's going to be a, a cool city for a long time. So that was kind of a, a good place to park this sort of influx of cash that I had gotten during the, the previous year. 
I love that. What's one thing that you always splurge on? Even even as smart as you are about money, what's the one thing you can't help but splurge on? Food and clothes, for sure. Um, like dinners out. Um, I, I, that's like people always ask what my hobbies are. I'm like, I'm not into hiking. I don't do outdoorsy things that much. But like going to dinner uh, with friends and getting a few nice bottles of wine is always something I'll splurge on no matter what. And clothes. I probably spend too much on clothes, but... Um, yeah, fashion's like, I mean, I see you got a nice suit on there. You know what I mean? It's like fashion, I feel like is a way that, yeah, that I like express myself and, um, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like part of my self identity. And also like just with so many public appearances and media and all that, like you can't be showing up to the same thing every time. So can't just be wearing like one suit. So I, I feel like clothes and, um, yeah, food, food and wine is probably the biggest, biggest ones. How do you manage that, the clothes thing? Because you are like, if not the freshest, one of the freshest athletes in the game. But to your point, it's like you wear something and then you feel like you can't wear it again. So how do you manage that? Like you said, you splurge on clothes. Is that a conversation you have or how do you kind of get the most use out of what you purchase on the fashion side? Yeah, sometimes it's difficult because sometimes like the dopest pieces are a little flashy or they're unique um, and you can't wear them that often. Um I try honestly to to not necessarily like oh this is business casual or this is like you know more formal or whatever like I just kind of dress how I want to dress all the time so I end up kind of getting a lot of miles out of certain things. I've also invested in like just some staples like a couple really nice suits, um, a couple really nice like loafers or pair of shoes, um, just kind of like some staple pieces that you can wear all over the place. Um, and then vintage t-shirts, they never go, they never go out of style. They're like $250 now, but I feel like you could wear them anywhere and all the time. So that's a, a good investment that I make a lot. I love it. Even the style game, you're being smart. Now, when I asked you that question, I, I was hoping that you would say, oh, I don't really splurge on anything or, or, or you wouldn't say clothes because I was going to call you out because I'm like, yo, Megan, I know you always keep it real. And if you don't say sneakers, I'm definitely going to put you on blast because I see your sneaker game. It's next level. I don't care what anybody says. You don't get the, the shoes you have without splurging just a little bit. Yeah, that is true. I mean, I'm lucky. I'm with Nike, so um, they've been they've been really good to both Sue and I over the years. Um, but there's definitely a few pieces, um, you know, on StockX that I've splurged on, or I'm like, I can't. They're, they're not showing up at my door, and, like, I want them right now, and, and I have to get them. So I try not to splurge too much on Nike because – because hopefully, you know, the magic fairy just brings them. But um, other ones like loafers, like a like a Celine loafer, or like some, you know, nice like black boots or something like that. That definitely takes care of all the stuff that I, I didn't have to buy for Nike. And let's get back to my conversation with Megan Rapino. How, how do you feel about like where you are as far as your knowledge on money and finances? I mean, earlier in career, you were already ahead of the curve just with, you know, your money mentor being there and as much as you knew about your finances. I remember for me, it was like starting out, I, I was just worried about getting my credit right. You know, and here I am 10, 15 years later, and I still feel like I don't know nearly as much as I should about money and finances and getting the most out of it. Where do you feel like you fall in that spectrum? And, and, and how do you continue to press yourself to make sure you're learning more and more about your finances and making the right decisions? I think exactly the same. I, I obviously, I think right away I realized, like, I don't know that much. I don't really know anything about finances, like, bar the bare minimum. And so it took me a while to be comfortable being insecure and being like, 
I don't know what that means. Can you explain that to me? Um, and just constantly asking those questions. And I feel really, you know, fortunate to have met my money mentor so early, but also be, you know, around other athletes and in rooms with other people um, that know so much more. So I always try to pick their brain. It's just a constant, you know, learning process. I feel like I could never know enough. Um, and especially the last year or two, making a lot more money than I had earlier in my career. I'm kind of like, okay, I'm in a different I'm in a different sort of room now. I'm in a different level, even just with my own personal finances. So how do I continue to learn and ask questions and constantly, you know, try to maximize everything that I'm doing and set me up, like I said before, for the rest of my career, because I'm only going to play for so long and it's such a short period in your career. And, you know, hopefully there'll be other opportunities and, you know, trying to set things up like that. But, um, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm not, you know, depending on, those things coming in, or I'm not depending on the next check or the next contract or whatever it may be. I've been really fortunate to make, you know, enough money that I think can last for a while. And then just trying to plan and make the best financial decisions for the future that I can. And that kind of allows you, I, I think having a little bit of money allows you, you know, the, the freedom to make some more long-term decisions that are maybe don't, you know, have the, the payoff right in the beginning, but as a financial investment or a long-term strategy um, can kind of set you up a lot better in the future. So just keep learning and constantly asking questions and not being embarrassed by the fact that I, I don't know that much and, and I'm willing and, and wanting to learn. I mean, you've adapted so well to the different versions of Megan Rapino, right? Like the amateur athlete. And then even from the pro to where you are now is just two completely different lives. At what point did you realize that you went from being Megan Rapino, the soccer player, to Megan Rapino, the athlete, activist, superhero icon that everyone kind of looks up to? It was a little bit of a, a long journey. Uh, I feel like, you know, the the activism part was kind of brewing through my career. We had equal pay claims, and um, you know, coming out as a gay athlete was all part of that. Obviously the, the most pivotal moment was, you know, supporting Colin Kaepernick and Black Lives Matter and, and kneeling with Colin during that, you know, fall of 2016 and, you know, being pay, basically kind of put out to pasture and in the wind a little bit. Um, and then just kind of understand, like, I'm just going to do my thing and, and play my game. And um, I feel like once I came back from that, cause I feel like people were trying to like push me out. And then once I was back from that, it just emboldened me so much more. Um, mm. and, and it kind of made me realize the privilege that I had in it. Cause obviously I got to come back and, you know, players like Colin and Eric uh, Reed are still out of the game. Um, and so I feel like I realized the sort of white privilege that, that I had and just decided like, I'm going to use this to the full advantage. And obviously being on the women's national team, getting to represent the United States of America all the time is, is something very different, both, you know, domestically and abroad. So just trying to use that to talk about the things that I care about. Cause I, I kind of honestly felt like I was in a position like, well, they're not going to cut me now. Like I kind of made it back. So I'm in, I'm in sort of a, a good position where I can leverage that a little bit. And I think over the course of these four or five years, um, you know, we've seen just how revolutionary, um, Colin was and just how, um, you know, his, his, his actions and his bravery has sparked this whole movement, um, along with Black Lives Matter. And, you know, obviously now everyone in the streets and so many more people vocal 
about it. I feel like I've been really lucky to to be a part of that and to be able to be, um, you know, one of the white athletes that, that has a microphone and that can use it. So, Megan, you talked about kneeling in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and you were the first white athlete in any sport to do so before you made that decision. Was it a tough decision for you or was it you just leaning in to what you believed? Yeah, it was just that. It, w- it was not tough at all, to be honest. Um, I don't know how many days exactly it was between the first time, you know, I saw Colin with uh, all the microphones in front of him in that locker room. And, you know, he said so beautifully and so eloquently what he was doing and why. And those words, you know, I just listened to him uh, about a month ago. Those words could be dropped into any soundbite today and they still ring 100% true to this day. And just the the words that he was saying and then going through that summer of 2016, um, you know, we had Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, and um, there was five police officers murdered in Dallas and more in Louisiana, I believe. Um, WNBA players had started to use their platform during that summer. And it was just honestly kind of a no-brainer. Like, it, it was not something that I was like, oh, should I do this? Uh, frankly, I didn't think that uh, the backlash would be quite what it was. I was, I think, in some way probably – you know, hoping or, um, you know, naively uh, in retrospect, hoping that maybe if I did it, this would bring a different perspective. And it was like, I just was like, clearly this is happening. Um, mm-hmm. So it was kind of a no brainer. Um, I, I, you know, I believed Colin. I think that's kind of what it came down to. I think with, with all of this, it's like you either believe the entire black and brown community or you don't. And if you don't, you're calling like literally millions of people with the same exact story liars. So you better be prepared to kind of back up that claim. Otherwise, it's like you just you believe them. This is happening. And if there's something that I could do to help or support or, you know, show up in solidarity, then that was that was the kneeling for me. That's amazing. I mean, even even in this fight against, uh, you know, social injustice, you see a lot of NFL players speaking out now and NBA players and WNBA players and really across the gamut. Uh, it's it's become you know, less of a polarizing topic and, and kind of more acceptable and almost an opportunity for a lot of people and entities and, and, and leagues. Uh, for you, do you think that women get their that gotten their just due and how important they've been in sports and speaking out against social injustice? No, of course not. <laughs> we, never, we never get our, our just due, I don't think. Um, you know, I think that, you know, going to the WNBA players, they were the first ones, Minnesota Lynx actually, um, were were the first team to speak out. They wore shirts with the names on the front, um, and I think the Dallas Police Shield um, on the back. And actually, the the police officers in their stadium that day walked off the job. Um, you know, it's it's it, it was really uh, unfortunate, but I think it it spoke volumes about group of people that were meant to protect and serve. And you know, you have black women standing up to to use their voice, and immediately they just walk off the job. So that was really disappointing, but. I think women's voices aren't heard, but I think particularly, and especially with this movement, black women's voices um, have, have not been heard when it, time, when it comes time to step to the microphone. I, I think we're seeing that more now. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter co-founders, obviously, um, Patrice and Alicia and Opal uh, are getting, it, it's not really about credit, but um, they're getting sort of their due respect for the groundwork that they've laid for, for this whole thing. Um, and I, I think we're seeing that. I think, you know, the more we can lean into intersectional voices, whether that's women or queer black people or black people in general, um, I feel like those are the times we make the most progress. Um, 
I mean, you've seen a lot in the feminist movement, how white feminist women have kind of taken over. And, you know, even with, you know, the recent celebration of securing the right to vote, um, we didn't really secure the right to vote, like white women secured the right to vote and then just called it sort of, you know, a, a blanket women get the right to vote. So I think we're, we're still kind of behind the curve on that. But hopefully this time period is, is changing that quite a bit. I, I am like blown away just by your kind of level of education in it. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I wish more people would take the time to kind of sit and do the research and understand this thing holistically, because I think it's what really could set the movement up for, you know, uh, more more progress. So in 2014, I wore a T-shirt on an NFL game. I got the death threats. The police union got mad at me for, you know, protesting in the middle of a game. But to your point, I picked up my cues. I think it was from the Notre Dame uh, women's college basketball team. They had worn I Can't Breathe shirts like that same week. So how do we as not just allies of, of uh, social injustice, but also just women voices in general. How do we do a better job of making sure that those situations are pushed more to the forefront and they're getting their just due and they're, they're benefiting, you know, by the same way some of the men athletes are who are speaking out and, and getting opportunities based off of that? How can we as allies do a better job of lifting up those voices in those situations? I think something, you know, as simple what I was talking about, uh, the Black Lives Matter founders getting their their right due and their right credit is even just saying their names when we talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, of course, if you're in a position, you know, to amplify a woman's voice or to give credit where credit is due, I think that that's the first step. I mean, I, I find uh, conflict in this a lot because being... Um, a white woman speaking out about all of these racial injustices. Like I get the microphone a lot. I get to be in a lot of these rooms. I'm getting awards that, uh, you know, are sort of like loosely based on soccer. But I think for the most part, they're based on a lot of the work that I've done off the field. And so for me personally, when I get into those rooms, like I didn't get myself into those rooms. Like I didn't build this whole platform. There are so many, you know, men and women's shoulders that, that I'm standing on um, or that are saying the exact same things that just aren't having the opportunity to be in front of those microphones. So giving the credit where credit is due and then just consciously um, and relentlessly making an effort to bring more voices to the forefront. Um, I mean, it's, you know, obvious that, you know, ESPN covers men's sports just way more than women. And I think in some ways, like that's a choice. I'm not saying right away, right now, we have to go 50%, you know, coverage for men and women, but we can definitely close the gap a little bit. Um, you know, I love LeBron. I love everything he's doing. Obviously, we got the more than an athlete sign in the background. Um, but the nine hours of coverage a day on LeBron and every single thing that he's doing, I think can be more well-rounded with more women's voices, obviously with the NBA and the WNBA bubbles coming back at the same time and the work that both bubbles are doing, the work that both players associations and unions are doing around social justice is just incredible. And so I would like to see, you know, more of a spotlight from media and fans alike. Um, and even some of the NBA players, uh, I'm putting the spotlight on these women and the amazing work that they've been able to do inside this bubble. I mean, you talked about it. I, I, I think LeBron would agree. He's uh, an ally and a champion of women's sports. And again, just, pushing them more to the forefront. So for, for you, with your knowledge of all of that, um, where are the biggest gaps in pay disparity for women athletes and women sports in general? 
I think the investment piece is the the most important, probably. I think when we talk about pay equity, the sort of hot button issue, obviously, is compensation and salaries. And that's kind of like the very last piece of it to me. Um, but when you look at if you if you look at sports like a, a business, you don't run a business on like a shoestring budget. And like if you make one dollar the year before, then you only have one more dollar to invest the following year. That's not how it works. Um you know, there's a, a reason that the NBA is is so successful, and all the owners in the W or in the NBA um, practically are are billionaires. They have to invest. They have to write those checks, and with that investment comes better marketing, comes better branding of the teams, comes a better storytelling. You get better uh, ticket sales, people. You get better people in the front office. You get better community outreach. You get a better. GM that can form a team that can actually get the players to win a championship and, and sort of if you extrapolate it all from there, um, you get the best and the brightest and the most talented. And I think oftentimes with, with women's sports, unfortunately, the most talented people that we have in the front office, they move on to other jobs because the, the resources aren't there, um, the investment into them as people and into them as um, you know, a vital part of the franchise just isn't there. And then I think the media is is another big piece. I think that so often I look at all the highlights on on ESPN or Sports Center, and you know there's a, a huge game in the WNBA, uh, or there's you know a, a soccer game going on, and it's just simply not covered. Um, and I think that they can just make a choice to cover it. It's like I think that you know people don't know what's going on in some of these women's sports leagues and they don't know where to find it and the games aren't on TV. So like, of course, they're not going to be super into all the storylines and, and following all these teams. So that kind of investment from a media standpoint and a storytelling standpoint, I think really starts to tell the whole picture and kind of puts the hooks in people that can become lifelong fans. I love that. I mean, you really have to invest in women and women's sports in general. How can people do that on a more like day-to-day basis, right? Like, that don't have the networks to cover it or, you know, can't invest in the teams or put more money into the WNBA, that kind of spend money to make money that you talk about, you know, how can people do that on a day-to-day basis to invest in women? I think just for the average fan, um, you know, of, of course, anytime they're on TV, you can watch. Uh, they have a League Pass app. Obviously, you can get the League Pass and, and watch the games. Um, TV ratings are, are huge. So the more people that watch those, um, those are what the, the sort of execs are, are going to pay attention to. If there's a team in your area, um, go to the games, be a season ticket holder. Um, you know, relatively speaking, the, the season tickets are not that expensive. Um, buy merch, even just like online, like talk about it more, tweet about it more, um, you know, post pictures about it more, whatever it is, the, the whole social media world. Um, the, there's such an ecosystem around men's sports uh, with so many people talking about it. I feel like if we could, you know, gain that interest in women's sport. And I think you're starting to see it a little bit. It more so comes in, in waves because we don't have the investment to have that sustainable growth. Um, but you're seeing it much more now with women's sports as, as it's more in people's face, as it's more in people's TVs and in their feeds, I think they find themselves just being more into it because they have more knowledge of it. Part of it is like, yes, we need to talk about sports more and, and do all that. But part of it is the investment into the broader business structure around the women's teams that I think is lacking. If you have one person doing all social media, all PR, all interviews, and then they're trying to like brand the team via social media, like you, you're just running that person ragged and, and you're spreading them really thin. So 
for me, I think the, the overall investment into the business structure around the actual team is, is really important. I say that all the time. Like, you know, the NFL is, is the biggest sport in, in, in the U.S. And I'm like, if you put those same resources, bells and whistles, graphic design, you know, and all the different elements that you put into the broadcast of an NFL game into the WNBA, then that would be the U.S.'s biggest sport. So I, I think you're right. You have to spend money to make money. And the example you laid out is perfect. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And I think what, what happens a lot in women's sports because of the lack of funding or under-resourcing, we get really young people, which is fine. There's a lot of young people that are super talented and eager and hungry and really creative. But then if they're really good and they're showing that talent, like they're going to be picked off probably by men's team, maybe even within the same organization. Or there's some employees that, you know, in NBA that work on NBA and WNBA. I can't imagine that that time is spent, you know, 50-50 on, on either. And so you kind of have that, either lack of talent or sort of t talent vacuum um, that we see in women's sports that just doesn't allow us to break through to that next level. I mean, you, you're so outspoken on so many issues. Do you ever think of the financial ramifications for you personally and your brand speaking out on, on things, whether it's, you know, uh, women's pay disparities or social injustice or, you know, gay rights? Is, is there ever for you a time you have to consider like the financial ramifications of anything that you're saying or doing? I mean, I feel like so far the ROI has been pretty good on this um, sort of path. Um, you know, in the beginning, when I first knelt, um, I didn't get dropped by anyone, but I certainly didn't get anything new. And I wasn't doing appearances or wasn't having those kind of one-off opportunities. So I, I very much understood the, the financial ramifications of that. Um, but I, I don't think about that. That's That's not how I live my life or I want to live my career. I am very outspoken. Um, and, and there's been things that I've, I've had to turn down because it doesn't align with the things that I believe in. Um, it doesn't align with the things that I speak out against. And it's frustrating sometimes. I'm like, damn, that was a big check. But like, it doesn't, it doesn't line up. So it kind of goes both ways. I feel like I've been extremely fortunate um, and, and compensated very well, you know, throughout my um, career, but especially as I've, you know, continued to speak out about things. And so I, I feel fortunate in that sense and um, always try to make sure that I'm doing it for the right reasons and not just um, taking a check just because or not speaking out just because I'm trying to get a check. During my NFL career in about 2014, I made the conscious decision to start speaking out on social justice issues. And this was well before the era we're in now, where it seems like every sport has a lot of athletes who use their platforms to shine light on the things they care about. You see, when I made the decision, I knew I was risking everything. And as a young man with a family to care for and protect, I had to weigh out that risk. And to be honest, it scared the hell out of me. But the bottom line for me was, any consequence that came with me doing what I felt in my heart was the right thing to do was well worth it. And I wasn't wrong. I once had a billion dollar company that I was close to doing a deal with tell me that the only hangup was that I was quite outspoken on race issues. To which I replied, we should all be quite outspoken on race issues. Unfortunately, most athletes have to think about the financial ramifications of speaking out about something they believe in. But fortunately, because of courageous pioneers that came before us, 
we're entering a place in society where athletes across all sports are being celebrated for standing up for a cause. And Megan is one of those prominent voices. All right, let's get back to it. How are you investing in yourself? Like spending money on developing your brand. Obviously, you've become, you know, kind of the go-to athlete uh, for transparency, honesty. And you talked about it speaking on all these issues and the ROI for you has been incredible. What other ways are you investing in yourself to make sure that your brand continues to climb just as a, a soccer player, an athlete, an icon, a host, you name it? Uh, still an athlete, although the, the athlete world is a little up in the air right now. Um, so just to try to continue to stay the best that I can on the field, I feel like that gives me such a huge platform. Um, I actually hired uh, someone full time that works with me now. Um, so they're kind of running the, the business. Uh, Jessica's running the business of, of Megan Rapino and just keeping, you know, all of the, the little threads kind of coming together and making sure that everything that we're doing makes sense from the sports um, you know, on the field to the sponsorships off the field to the types of events that I'm doing to the political stuff, the strategy, all of that. That's been huge for me. Um, mm -hmm. Frankly, it got completely overwhelming after last summer and um, my head was spinning a little bit. So adding Jessica to the team along with my agent, Dan, um, who's been with me the whole time for, for over 10 years, that's kind of like the tight knit crew. Um, so they keep mm -hmm. me um, focused and just to kind of have that not only people like keeping focused and making sure that everything makes sense, but that sort of counsel as well. And that advice that I get from, from those people that are so close to me, um, I think is just a, a, a North star that I, I couldn't be more thankful for. That's amazing. I mean, I, I want to invest into the Megan Rapino business because the Megan Rapino <laughs> business is booming. Um, you know, you're talking about last summer and, and you engaged in a series of highly contentious tweets. So I'm sure the trolls, we're on the loose, you know, coming at you. Did, did you did that affect your financial security at all when that was going on? Yeah, all of a sudden I started to get all of these like, you know, like the two-step verification for everything, whether it be like Snapchat or my banks or, uh, you know, Instagram or whatever it was. Um, yeah, sort of immediately. I mean, when the, you know, when the president of the United States, uh, when he unleashes himself on you, that means, you know, the the base of trolls also unleash themselves on you. So I had a lot of verification codes come through. Lucky I was on two-step for, for all of the sort of fraud protection and just keeping myself safe. That's actually like super important. I sort of learned that early on. Um, but as that sort of came to fruition last summer, I was, I was very thankful for all the new technology and being able to keep myself safe. And I mean, everything's online now. If someone got a hold of my phone or my computer or something like that, I mean, they would, they would kind of have everything so it's it's really important for me and in sort of reiterated last summer like well first of all anyone can come at you at any time and uh that's kind of wild that someone who should have been a lot more busy with other things was coming at me but um he did and so i, I was thankful to have kind of those steps put in place i mean that, that's one thing i don't think people think about right when you when you ascend to that level that you're more visible the spotlight is on you you know, but it also increase, increases fraud risk for a lot of reasons. So how do you manage just not only financial security, just fraud risk in general, now that you are, again, kind of positioned as this icon that transcends even the sport that made you who you are? Yeah, I mean, you know, don't use like your street name and your year of birth as your password because people can find that out. So just like, you know, using a strong password, 
setting up two two step verification on everything. To be honest, um, you know, from social media to my banks to um, you know all that kind of stuff, email passwords and all of that. I read this article a while back that was it was talking about like the the uber rich people in the world and how they do an incredible job of of physical personal security, but the cyber part of the security is actually the most important part and the most dangerous part. Um, and that kind of like freaked me out. And so I just try to make sure that I'm, I'm up to date on everything and sort of paying attention and checking accounts and all of that, just to kind of make sure everything is solid. It's like a never ending cycle, man. I, I'm not gonna lie. I freak out about that kind of stuff where I'm like changing my passwords. I feel like almost weekly, like just trying to, I'm like, someone's going to figure this out. It's like the, you know, this is my code and I gotta, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's smart that you stay on top of it the way you do. Uh, let's kick to the future here. Like, what are the long-term investments uh, for women in sports that excite you or like that you feel are important, whether it's big or small? I've seen a lot of exciting investment in my own league in the NWSL. Uh, we just had the, the French club Olympic Lyonnais come in and buy uh, the majority stake of the team, which is going to bring more money, which brings better people, more resources to really grow the business. That's super exciting. Um, Angel City FC, the women's team out of LA. They have a super interesting ownership group that pulls on a lot of different parts of our society. And, you know, women actresses and men actresses or men actors, they have people from private equity and VC companies. Uh, they have sort of a, a various assortment uh, of celebrities. They have a very famous two year old, uh, uh, the Little Williams, uh, Serena's daughter. She's in on the ownership group and uh, Alexis Ohanian. Uh, as well, her husband, the the Reddit founder. So I feel like that might be a kind of future for women's sports of how do we use all of the resources in our network? Maybe it's not a traditional one or two, you know, owners that have the team or a small ownership group that aren't very public facing. Maybe it's a more public facing. Maybe we lean into the branding um, that people have on social media or whatever it is, or former athletes or actresses that are not only interested in sports and, and growing women's sports, but but also as a, a sort of women's empowerment and, and equality movement in general. So I'm excited about that sort of partnership. I can't wait for, um, you know, the team to kind of start going and to see how successful they are. And maybe there's uh, some sort of ownership of, of something in my future. So what advice do you have for the younger generation that feels passionate about social justice and, and speaking out and kind of carving out their own personal brand based on what they believe as a person? I would say the first piece of advice that I have um, is don't ever put yourself in a box. Don't ever think you're only just one thing. You shouldn't be. Um, just because we're athletes doesn't mean we don't have other interests or other passions. So that's the first thing. Education is paramount. It's the most important thing. So if you have a, an issue or something that you know you're passionate about um, and that you want to get involved in, I would educate yourself first and kind of kind of tiptoe your way into it. And then you can, you know, once you have that kind of arsenal of education and information with you, then you can speak off the cuff a little bit more and you can uh, feel comfortable being in any situation and being able to speak about it. Um, and then just to, to be bold, I think, you know, I, I think we're seeing now the, the voice of just one person can be so impactful. Um, obviously, you know, seeing what Colin did, but seeing the people march in the streets, seeing athletes now using their voices and how impactful that was, what the Bucks did 
Um, the WNBA took off a game. You know, my own league players wearing shirts and kneeling. Um, don't ever think that your one voice is uh, not important or not going to make an impact. It, it absolutely can. And I think if everybody takes that approach, you know, that sort of swell of voices together is so important. Um, and and kind of to trust your gut, I think, is the last thing and cultivate that gut feeling. Um, I think we don't always listen to that or just think of it as like, you know, this thing that comes and goes. But I think if you really pay attention to that and listen to that and sort of sit with yourself and and kind of develop that skill of trusting your gut, it can be uh, vital for you and in, in decision making and um, can be a good counselor for you, I think. That's 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 incredible. You got to educate yourself first, man. I love that. All right. So this is my last question for you, Megan. 20 years from now, where are you? What are you doing? What, what is life like for Megan Rapino in the year 2040? I would imagine it's going to look similar. Um, I'll probably keep these for at least 20 more years. It's a nice silk, so I'll probably be uh, still into fashion. Um, I can't imagine I'll ever stop speaking as loud as I possibly can about the things that I care about. Um, you know, I hope to, you know, stay interested and involved in, in politics in, in some sort of way. I get asked all the time if I'm going to run for office. That seems crazy. And uh, it seems like a lot of work. I don't know if I'm totally, I feel like you got to be maybe a little bit more, um, you know, calm and well balanced, but maybe I could be, uh, you know, somewhere in there, at least, you know, uh, a, a social commentator of some kind. Um, definitely retired at that point. I think I can, I think I can safely say that, but yeah, hopefully just continuing to find ways to use my voice to tell stories that are, you know, pushed out of the mainstream or not spoken about at all. And just, you know, continue to try to make this country um, a better place every single day. I love that, Meg. I mean, you are uh, an icon, you are a thought leader, and you are really kind of pushing the forefront of athletes of this generation. So I appreciate you for joining us here on Needing Dough. And yeah, enjoy. Best of luck uh, for the rest of the year. And I, you got my vote. I want you to know that. So whenever you make the decision, you need a campaign manager. Holla at your boy. All right. Sounds good. It's a deal. Thank you. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Until then, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free. It helps other people find the show. And that way, you'll never miss an episode. Our executive producers are myself and John Fontanelli. This episode was produced by Logan Castradale, and our editor and engineer is Chris Watherspoon. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.